mentioning a um, either a full moon or a balloon outside her window and uh, um, I haven't looked is there a full moon out tonight uh, I have no idea what was out last night I, uh, I got dead to the world and then awakened uh, well probably about nine o'clock last night and awakened by my associate Bucky this morning and uh, uh, early, too early, like uh, 2.30 in the morning. Well, you guys are saying the moon is bright. That's good. Um, got a little, a little cool last night. Looks like it's 20s. 
Wonder how the uh, temperatures are down where you are there, Miss Priscilla. Good temperatures down there in Virginia on the coast, sort of, kind of, not really coast. Well, close to the coast. Chesapeake's pretty close. So uh, anyway, we are in Matthew chapter 20. That's where we'll be heading today. Continuing in the passage we were looking at yesterday, we see Jesus in this passage um, looking at uh, predicting again uh, another uh, one one more time his death. So let me uh, let me jump in here and read this to us, Jesus. Now, well. Well on the way up to Jerusalem, took the twelve off to the side of the road and said, Listen to me carefully. We are on our way up to Jerusalem. When we get there, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the religious leaders and scholars. They will sentence him to death, and they will hand him over uh, to the Romans for mockery and torture and crucifixion. On the third day, he will be raised up alive. Now, what I find interesting in this passage is that we see no response from the disciples whatsoever. None. And you would think that they would have some response. None of the synoptic uh, comparative passages have a response, not one. Um, Mark says they were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were unafraid or were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem. He said, the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, um, this makes it very, very clear. In the Mark passage, they will kill him. To kill means to kill to death. Uh, and, and he's telling them, look, I'm going to be killed to death. Um, this crucifixion isn't just a crucifixion where I'm going to be kind of bloodied up and beaten up but uh, and left for dead, though not dead. No. The crucifixion that's going to take place is a crucifixion. I will be killed. Now, the only thing that uh, Luke adds is says, uh, says this, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. I mean, you look at it and you think it's pretty clear language, what he's saying to them. Uh, I mean, we know who his accusers will be based on what he tells us. We know who his killers will be based on what he tells us, especially here in the Matthew passage. There is no surprise left there for us betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders, the scholars, sentence him to death. And then notice they hand him over to the Romans, and it's the Romans who will 
ultimately crucify him. The Jews wouldn't do that, but the Romans would. And then Jesus says on the third day, he will be raised up alive. Now, this is a third time that Jesus is telling the disciples. He's giving them a clue that something like this is going to happen or that this, in fact, itself is going to happen. He's giving them insight. So one of the things that that we see Jesus doing, he would ready his uh, people for what was coming. He would either give clues or hints or flat out tell them. Uh, what what was going to be coming uh, next? Uh, that that was his practice, and so for uh, at least a few months, at least a few months prior to his crucifixion, he was already telling them, he was already uh, preparing them. Uh, now they heard it, but it didn't really kick into gear in their hearts and minds until it really happened. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they were still thinking that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom, uh, reestablish the, uh, uh, Israel as its own nation, uh, oust the Romans, and be the king. That's what they were still thinking. They just couldn't get their head around the fact that, that what he's saying to them uh, is, uh, is, in fact, going to happen. By this time, now he is putting it, they're on their way to Jerusalem. He wants them to know exactly what's going to happen there. Uh, And he makes it abundantly clear this is what's happening. Uh, And so they can see it. Now, here's a leadership principle in this. Sometimes you you ready people for what's coming. Uh, And sometimes it takes several months. Uh, Sometimes it can take even a few years. Uh, But you ready people. That that, that was a, a... model of Jesus uh, to do something like that. Uh, And so to be listening to what Jesus is saying, to be listening to what a leader is saying, uh, so that you're not caught off guard. Jesus told them, and now he tells them straight up, absolutely clearly, what is going to happen. So that's the prediction. Uh, a third time he's tell, telling them about his death. Now, we are moving toward what will be the final week of Jesus' ministry. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but we're moving quickly toward the final week prior to the crucifixion. Uh, and we will spend the uh, several, uh, the next few months actually, Uh, looking at only about a week of Jesus' life as we lead ourselves up to Easter. Now, the next big event that's going to happen for us in our practice uh, is the event of uh, Ash Wednesday. That's a Wednesday where we reflect, where we think about our sinfulness, where we remember our mortality, uh, where we remember... um, our need of a Savior. Uh, And so Ash Wednesday, February 22nd, we will have an evening uh, Ash Wednesday uh, service, uh, a time of of some very um, simple music, uh, a time of uh, reflection and putting the ash on the head. What is the point of the ash? The point of the ash is just 
marking ourselves. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. That's the point of the ash. Now, continuing in the passage, we're going to go on to the next thing he has to say. As they're walking along, it says this, at about that time, the mother of the Zebedee brothers, let me put this into the New Living Translation. I'm realizing that I have it in the, uh, the message. There we go. Says, then the mother of James and John, the Zebedee brothers, uh, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? She asked. And she re- uh, what is your request? He asked, and she replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over them, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life. Uh, as a ransom for many. Now, just just what's happening in this scenario? Um, this mother looking out for her sons, uh, making this request uh, of Jesus that her dear boys would be able to um, sit at his right and his left. It's almost a a prideful request in some ways. Uh, The mother's asking, and that's what parents do. Parents advocate for their kids. Grandparents advocate for their grandkids. Uh, And it doesn't say that she came up like, you know, uh, bobbing her shoulder side to side and pointing her fist in his nose or her her finger in his nose and, and saying, Now, you need to give my sons first places. It does say, hit my microphone, I did that. It does say that she came respectfully and she knelt respectfully uh, to ask this favor. That was her positioning. She did come in humility. It might not have been out and out pride. But she had this request, and the request was simply, and we've just read it, to be able to sit on his right or on his left, uh, places of honor next to you. But Jesus said, I don't even get to say who sits on my right and on my left. That is not for me to say. It's up to my father. Um, My father 
determines who will do that. And then he goes into this line of thought about you don't know what you're asking. The idea of are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink. Now, he just told them uh, in the passage we just read what this suffering will entail. Uh, this suffering will entail uh, beating. This uh, suffering will entail bloodshed. This suffering uh, will entail uh, a false narrative, lies, conspiracy. Uh, they'll say many untrue things about him. So it's a bitter cup of suffering. And he says, "If can you drink the bitter cup that I am going to drink? And of course they said, oh yes, they replied, we're able now. I remembered back to... Uh, some movies my kids uh, used to watch about dinosaurs. Uh, Land Before Time is what it was called. I mean, it was theologically and historically incorrect. Um, but there was one thing that sometimes a little baby dinosaur would say, oh, yes, 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 yes. And it's almost like you, these disciples are saying, oh, yes, we're able. We, we will do it. And they're still not uh, comprehending how weighty this will be. Well, then he goes into verse 23, and he says, you indeed will drink from my bitter cup. They will participate, and oftentimes we will participate in drinking suffering, in enduring suffering, in enduring hardship, in enduring difficulty. You will indeed drink from my bitter cup. But he says, I have no right to say who will sit on my left or my right. My father has prepared those places for those he has chosen. Now we get back into the idea of God's sovereignty. The idea that, that God is the one who chooses. The idea that God is the one who will determine who will sit on the left and the right. What we do know is that there are the 24 elders likely... Uh, some of the original of the 12 tribes uh, mentioned in the book of Revelation, and likely perhaps the original 12 apostles minus Judas plus Paul uh, that will make the 24 elders whose seats seem to be the closest to the throne of God. But ultimately, God... Uh, says in verse 23, God prepares places for those he has chosen. For some, God has chosen blessing. For some, God has chosen suffering. For some, God has chose, chosen honor. For others, God has chosen dishonor. And you think about Peter being crucified upside down later on, uh, well after this time, uh, or you think about Jeremiah in the slimy pit and the dishonor that they would experience as a part of God's will. My father has prepared those places for those he has chosen. I mean, one of the things we have to wrestle with is, does God have the sovereign prerogative uh, concerning what will happen? Does God have the so sovereign prerogative concerning what will happen in our lives? We look to him. We trust him. 
Uh, we believe in him. But are we surrendered to him when his will leads us into a difficult, challenging place? Again, some of you have, have been through great difficulty in your life. Some of you have, have suffered immensely. Some of you currently are suffering. And to think of that as being part of God's will. But, but how has God formed you through the suffering? I know that there are some of you whom God has done incredible things in your life as a result of suffering. He has formed you more deeply in Christ. So Jesus just reminds them, and he reminds us, God chooses, God prepares, God will do in our lives what God will do. Oftentimes the things that he does uh, are things he does to help us get aligned with himself. Now, it goes on in the passage. Notice the response of the others. It's like, you guys ask for what? When the other ten heard what James and John asked, they were indignant. Yeah, you know what? They were cut out of the same swatch of cloth. They may have done the same thing. I mean, how do we do that? We, we act all surprised when, when someone does something that might be the same thing that we ourselves might do as well. Jesus called them together, and he gives this lesson on leadership. He said, you know that the rulers of this world lorded over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for the many. Here's a lesson on leadership. Now, uh, Greenleaf, I can't remember his first name, in the 70s, stumbled upon this concept of servant leadership and, and uh, launched a whole, quote-unquote, new leadership theory about servant leadership. And yet, it was nothing new. It was something that Jesus taught. Uh, if, if you want to be the leader, now, you can be the boss. There is a big difference between being a boss and being a leader. Bosses uh, dictate orders. Bosses uh, uh, can be demeaning to their employees. Uh, but biblical leaders, servant leaders, leaders in the... Uh, pattern of Jesus are leaders who will be servants. They will be slaves. They will look out for the best interests of their followers. And I just want to look up something real fast. So what is student leadership is, is the question. Servant leadership leads by serving others. In other words, servant leaders place the interests and needs of their followers ahead of their own self-interest and needs. 
Generally, they value the development of their followers, building their communities, acting authentically, and sharing power. Uh, that, that is modern definition of servant leadership, and I could give you uh, several characteristics of, uh, of a servant leader. But when you're the type of leader that is looking out for the best interest of your employees, uh, if you're the type of leader who is looking out for the best interest of others, uh, then you win uh, points. You, you, you win the respect of those you're leading. And they want to follow you. There's a difference between following you because you're the boss and you uh, have the transactional right of granting pay or withholding pay or firing somebody. That's what a transactional leader does. But a servant leader or a transformational leader not only looks out for the good of the organization, but is looking out for the good of the people within the organization and the constituents of that organization, looking out for their best. And, and, and those leaders follow really what the leadership style of Jesus is that he has given to us here. Now, we can, we can exert power uh, or we can demonstrate love and compassion. Now, that doesn't mean that as a leader you have to be willy-nilly. That doesn't mean as a leader you have to be walked over. Uh, but it, what it does mean is that your people are first and foremost, especially if you're a Christian leader leading in the ways of Christ, first and foremost is going to experience Christ through you. That's biblical Christian servant leadership. And this is the leadership Jesus espouses here in Matthew chapter 20. Notice what he said. Verse 26, among you will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Um, that's what he's doing. Serving, giving his life as a ransom. What do people see? If you're a leader, what do people see in you, in your leadership? How do you lead? Do people want to follow? I mean, there are, there's difference between people that have to follow and people who want to follow. Those who have to follow know that if they don't follow, they can lose their job. But those who want to follow uh, are people who... Uh, really are inspired by the leader. They feel that the leader has not only the organization's best interest at heart, but also their best interest. That is the example of, um, of Jesus. Now, I want to read to you, just closing out, some other characteristics. And this, again, is from modern leadership theory. Um. Active listening, servant leaders actively listen to their followers. Empathy, they have the ability to empathize. They're healers. Servant leaders have the ability to heal themselves and their followers through creating a sense of well-being. Awareness, they're generally aware of the environment and issues affecting their organization and its members. Persuasion, 
Uh, servant leaders influence others through persuasion rather than through the exe- uh, through the exercise of authority or coercion. Foresight, they have the ability to foresee consequences of events and actions involving their organization and its members. Conceptualization, they can see the vision and the goals and figure out ways to inspire people toward that vision and goal. Stewardship, they're stewards, which means they view their position as having a caretaking responsibility over the organization rather than being the boss. Growth to commitment and emancipation. Servant leaders are personally committed to the personal and professional growth of their followers. Building community. Uh, They're committed to building a sense of community within the organization. So Jesus has announced... Uh, Look, I'm going to be off the scene here soon. But then he is also instructed that when you lead, this is how you're to do it. You're to lead as a servant. When I'm off the scene, when I am in heaven, when I've sent the Holy Spirit to empower you, you will influence others because of your servanthood. What about us? Could that be us? Would we learn from these words? This, in my opinion, Matthew 20, these verses that we've looked at here, especially verses 20, uh, 26, 27, 28, are verses every Christian ought to know. So if you have a notebook and you're writing down uh, every passage that Pastor Jim says, this is a passage you really ought to know, uh, this is one of those passages because it instructs, informs, and forms us in our Christian leadership. Well, friends, we'll pick up from there tomorrow uh, and move on and and see how Jesus begins to move uh, into the city or as he's moving toward the city, things that happen along the way, how he uh, intersects and interacts with people. And we continue to marvel at the miracles and the power of the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to live as servants, servants of Christ's servants of others, to live as the type of people that would cause other people to want to follow us as we follow you. May people see Christ in us today. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, it's a wrap for today. You have a great day. I will see you again tomorrow morning.